So we're looking at the book of Revelation, and this is part two of a, an introduction, really, a, a sort of a, a run-through of the entire book. Now, if you remember from last week, we went up to about halfway through the tribulation. Remember, the tribulation is uh, sort of split into two halves in one sense, because the second half is a lot worse than the first. Now, if you remember from last week, we looked at the fact that uh, written by John, John was a pastor, um, ministering at Ephesus, the church at Ephesus at the time. Ephesus was the main church of the seven churches which the letters were written to. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. And he was there, but he was arrested and he was banished. The rest of the apostles were killed. Uh, he was banished. He lived to a, an old age and he's a reasonably old man by the time he writes this book because as he's on the island of Patmos he is visited. He has a vision and he sees Jesus Christ and he's told to write down the things which are the things which will also be in the future. So the first part of the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 1, is really just telling us that um, he sees Jesus and we get the description of Jesus. Then he's told to write down some letters to seven churches, as I've already mentioned. Uh, these seven churches were actually churches at the time, but they're also representative of all churches throughout history. So there are churches still today like Ephesus, there are others like Smyrna and so on and so forth. So these letters went out to the original seven churches but also they are to all churches everywhere to make sure that um, we are not like for example Laodicea but we are like Philadelphia which was a good church. So chapters 2 and 3 contain the letters. Then in chapter 4 John then now he's telling us about the things which are to come in the future and he's taken up into heaven in chapter 4 and he sees in heaven God the Father on the throne and in God the Father's hand is a scroll it's sealed seven times and in the scroll, uh, the scroll in one sense it's sort of like the title deeds to earth but it also describes the events that are going to come just leading up to the time when Jesus Christ returns in the second coming a short period of time relatively, seven year period leading up to the second coming and the only one worthy to open the scroll obviously is Jesus Christ and he steps forward he takes the scroll and he begins to unravel the scroll unroll the scroll and as he does so he breaks each seal and as he's looking at the scroll John really he, it's not so much that he's told what happens he, he actually sees it in this vision so John sees exactly all the various events that are going to occur in the future as Jesus unrolls this scroll, breaking each seal as it goes. And it's given to us in pictures. For example, we get the trumpets, we get the seals, we get all the other items. But really, all it's really doing is telling us what's going to happen at some time in the future. We don't know when, but it will happen at some point. Now last week we got up to the seventh seal. We didn't look at the seventh seal. Seventh seal is in chapter 8. Now the seventh seal starts halfway through the seven year tribulation period. So we've already looked at last week the first half. If you uh, wanted a recap on that, the, uh, I did uh, tape that, I uh, record it. It is on the website. So you can listen to that on the website. The first half 
leading up to the second half of the tribulation period. So in the seventh seal, we get a response really, first of all, in chapter 8, verse 1, to the first six seals. And it says in chapter 8, verse 1, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about the space of half an hour. And that's a response to the first six seals. The first six seals, remember, just describe the events that happened in the first half of the tribulation period, the first three and a half years. And in response to all those horrible things that we saw last week that were happening, that are going to happen at some time in the future, suddenly everything stops in heaven. It's almost like they're in awe of the holocaust of divine fury being poured out. So the first thing that happens in response to those first six seals, the first three and a half years of the seven year tribulation period, heaven just stops for half an hour, it's silent. Then we move on into the second half of the tribulation period. Now this is, as it goes through, just three and a half years, but um, very, very intense three and a half years. And as you get through the three and a half years, it gets more and more intense. It gets worse. The terrible things that happen become worse and worse. And it's shown to us in seven trumpets. Each trumpet signifies a judgment and tells us something that's going to happen. So Jesus rolls out the scroll of the broken seals and we get these trumpets. Verse 6 and 7 says, And seven angels had seven trumpets ready to sound. And then the first trumpet sounded and there was hail and fire mixed with blood cast upon the earth. And a third of the trees and all green grass were burnt up. So the first judgment in the second half of the tribulation period is a judgment on the vegetation. Which is really a judgment on the people because you can't live without vegetation but notice it doesn't say all vegetation it's just a portion of it a third but obviously people can't live without vegetation it's also a judgment on the animals because they can't live without vegetation either so that's the first thing that happens the second thing that happens we see in verse 8 another trumpet sounds signifying that there's another asteroid remember there's already been an asteroid before this as we saw last week which hits the sea Verse 8 and verse 9, a third part of the sea becomes blood, a third part of the creatures in the sea die, and a third part of the ships were destroyed. So already we've got one third of all vegetation is now gone, one third of the sea becomes blood, and a third of the creatures in the sea die. Not all of them, but a third. Now you can imagine that would be pretty horrendous, um, floating corpses around the sea of the world. Most scholars would agree that the reason that this happens is because mankind has always failed to recognise the gifts of God in creation. Um, so God takes it away. It's almost symbolic, this particular one. People on earth have failed to give God the glory for the fact that he created it all. It didn't happen by chance, like Richard Dawkins and all the other people who are fools, as far as God is concerned. As God says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. This is a judgment. It's a judgment on the planet on the people particularly because they have not accepted that God created all this beauty which leads to the third trumpet in verse 10 fell on the third part of the rivers and the fountains of waters and it was called wormwood and it became bitter this asteroid also destroys the fresh water a third part obviously not all of it we'll get to that in a moment but a third part of the fresh water is also struck with bitterness this would be a big problem. 
But then you get the fourth trumpet blowing in verse 12. The third part of the sun was struck. So you can see the progression here. Um, you can imagine what that would do to the calendar. It would cause absolute havoc. A third part of the moon is gone. A third part of the stars are gone. And a third part of them is darkness, it says in verse 12. And the day would not shine for the third part of it, and the night likewise. So the whole calendar is wiped out. Eclipse is going on. And then we see in verse 13, and heard an eagle flying around in mid-heaven saying, War, war, war. Probably an angel. We don't know for sure, but probably. And it's almost as if he's saying, you think this is bad? Well, wait until you see what's coming next. Wait until you hear about the next three. It's almost like you haven't heard anything yet. Which brings us to chapter 9. We get the fifth trumpet and a star falls from heaven. Now this isn't actually a star, this is Lucifer. And he's given the key to the bottomless pit. That's hell. In the bottomless pit... There are a multitude of bound demons. Now, when Satan was cast out of heaven with a third of the angels, who obviously then became demons, he was not cast into hell. I know people think of the devil as being in hell. He's not in hell. Most of the demons are not in hell. There are demons in hell, and they're there for a specific reason. We read about some of them later in Genesis, who are cast and bound... But not all demons are in hell. Satan's certainly not in hell. In fact, we read in Peter, he roams around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he can devour. So he's not bound, he's not in hell. But there are demons who are in hell. So the demons that were bound by God and Satan during this tribulation period is given the key it's not an actual key but he's obviously given the ability to release these demons who are bound in hell almost um, I suppose you could say they're the worst of the worst they are now released so that on the fifth trumpet Satan goes down to hell and he unlocks it releasing the worst of the worst of the demons and it says in verse 2 and smoke out of the pit like the smoke of a furnace and the sun of the air was darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit and it says that like locusts in verse 3 great demonic plague so what's happening now is all of the demons who are bound are being released they sweep across the earth and that's why the tribulation is going to be such a horrifically terrible time and all the bound demons in hell are going to be turned loose to add to the ones who are already running all over the earth and they are limited it says in verse 4 they are commanded that they should not hurt the grass of the earth neither any green thing neither any tree but only those men who have not the seal of God on their foreheads verse 4 in other words anybody who isn't a Christian which means they are not allowed to harm the Christians so they're not going to attack creation but they are going to attack non-Christians. They can't kill them, it says in verse 5 and 6, but they can torment them. And they can do it for five months. And then it gives us some sort of descriptive language. It's like a scorpion when he strikes a man. And they will, it'll be so horrible, whatever they do, that people will seek death, but they won't be able to find it. It says they shall desire to die, but death will flee from them. In other words, people at this time will not be able to find any relief, even in death. So you have the description of these demonic beings in, in symbolic language. It says they have a king over them, obviously Satan. The king is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, and in the Greek Apollyon. Then it says in verse 12, basically, well if you think that's bad, there's still two more trumpets to come. The sixth trumpet blows, and the Euphrates River is bought, um, opened up. 
some angels, for some, uh, these are demonic angels, evil angels, are bound near the Euphrates River. And it says in verse 15, And the angels who were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year to slay a third part of men. So another host of demons is released by an angel, and they're going to slaughter one third of the population of the planet. Um, it says the number of the army, verse 16 now, of the horsemen is 200,000 thousand. That's 200 million. So they kill a third of the world by fire, by smoke and brimstone which comes out of their mouth, verse 18. Might be some kind of weaponry uh, described in ancient terms. And the rest of mankind, verse 20 and 21, I'm in now, were not killed by these plagues, but they still didn't repent. Which is amazing when you think about it. All this that's going on, people still don't repent, they just curse God. So they have the first six trumpets. That's all going to come in the second part of the tribulation period. In chapter 10, you then get another respite. Remember we saw uh, previously that every now and then, it's almost like as if this is so much for John. Remember, he's not listening to somebody like me tell him what's going to happen. He's seeing it. It's, it's almost like a video played out before him. And every now and then, God gives him a break, in a sense. Um, in chapter 10, you get another respite. And he's also given us a respite as well. Um, another strong angel from heaven comes, and his face was like the sun feet like pillars of fire and he had in his hand a scroll and his right foot is on the sea and his left foot is on the earth immediately people think well, hang on, that's Jesus well no it's not Jesus because this isn't the second coming and also the Greek word is another angel means one of the same kind in other words an angel angel not the angel of the Lord which is Jesus so this is another angel obviously a very high ranking angel uh, we see a rainbow there that reminds us that God is still gracious his feet are like pillars which shows a firm resolve, steadfastness and he cries out with a loud voice like a lion and seven peals of thunder utter their voices and then he tells us something very interesting he says to John in verse 5 don't tell them about this bit it's much too terrifying, it's too horrible don't tell them in other words the next bit is so bad um, I feel sorry for John because he gets to, to know what it is but the, he says to John don't tell them, that's you don't tell you, don't tell me, don't tell Christians throughout history what happens at this particular point because it's just too bad it's just too horrific it's so bad, God doesn't want us to know about it so you can imagine how bad it is because the rest of it's pretty bad and then John sees a scroll and he's told to take it and put it in his mouth. This is chapter 10 verse 9. Eat it and swallow it. And in its mouth, in his mouth it says it was sweet, but in its belly it was bitter. In other words, this really sums up, um, well a lot of Christianity actually. It's, it sums up the cross to me. Um, the cross is both sweet and bitter. It's horrific. It's terrible. It's disgusting in a sense to, to crucify a man. But at the same time, if he didn't go to the cross we wouldn't be saved and we wouldn't be spending eternity in heaven so it's sweet for us but it's also bitter and that's also true of the second coming and the tribulation period it's sweet because Jesus finally comes back God finally gets the glory he deserves people are finally punished for their dis disobeying God and rejecting God but it's also bitter because it's horrible devastation, eternal damnation and that's why it's both sweet and bitter then before the seventh trumpet sounds, there's another glimpse of God's grace in chapter 11. And we see two witnesses. 
verse 4. There are two olive trees, two lampstands standing before the God of earth. Now, two olive trees and two lampstands goes back to the prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah had a prophecy that related, as a lot of prophecies do, to the time of Zechariah and also to the future. You see in the Old Testament there are a lot of prophecies that relate to the time, at the time, but also the future as well. And the prophecy that came to Zechariah concerned the rebuilding of the temple in his own time, as well as the restoration of the kingdom at the second coming, or just before. The kingdom promised to Israel when the Messiah would reign. Now the rebuilding of the temple in his time had been approved in Ezra's time, but it wasn't done. So God originally used Zechariah to get two men uh, to encourage leading, the, uh, building the temple, the restoration of Israel. And the two men were very important because one was a priest and one was a ruler. One was called Joshua, not the Joshua from earlier at Old Testament, but another Joshua. And one was called Zerubbabel. Joshua was the high priest, Zerubbabel is the king, or the ruler, and these two men were called two olive trees originally, and they would restore Israel at that time. But also in Zechariah there's a future aspect to this, because in the future there will be another two men, and they will be the means of the restoration of Israel. Now we're talking about Israel now, not just Christians generally, but Israel, Jewish people, in the time of the tribulation. And these two men are the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11. And as a result of their preaching, all Israel will be saved. Now if you remember, Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 11 verse 26. He says at some point in the future all Israel will be saved. This is, this is how it happens. So these two witnesses from God, the world hates them because they're witnesses from God. They're going to preach Jesus Christ, the world will then hate them even more. However, they can defend themselves, because it says in verse 5, If anyone hurts them, fire proceeds out of their mouths and devours their enemies. They have supernatural powers. They can also control the weather, verse 6. But then the beast comes, verse 7 and 8, and he overcomes them and he kills them. And their dead bodies lie in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days great city of Jerusalem where our Lord was crucified and all the people it says in verse 9 see the dead bodies three days and a half in other words they'll be on the television they'll be on the internet everyone will see this happening and we're told that the people of the world will rejoice they'll make merry and they'll even send presents to each other they'll be so happy that these two men are dead they'll have a dead witnesses celebration and they'll even give gifts which is shocking and then it says in verse 11 though after three and a half days, the spirit of life from God goes into them and they come back to life. And great fear falls upon everyone who sees them. And a voice from heaven says, come up here. And they go up to heaven. And at the same hour there's a great earthquake, a tenth of the city falls. Several thousand are killed, the remnant are terrified and they give God glory in heaven. After that, we get an interlude and we come back to the seventh trumpet when the seventh one blows it's the finale verse 15 uh, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever so when the seventh trumpet blows we'll see in a moment the kingdom of the world are finally in the control of Jesus Christ but in chapter 12 we go back in time to pick up a little more detail just to give us before we get to the very end before we get to the seven final balls and chapter 12 
what happens in chapter 12 of Revelation. That describes Satan's incessant persecution of Israel, the Jews, God's people, the Messiah, and the people of God. So the next few chapters in Revelation, starting in chapter 12, tell us how he has always warred against God's people. And it's given to us in picture form. The woman in this chapter is Israel, the child is Jesus Christ, and the dragon is Satan. And the dragon is always after the child born of the woman. And he has fought in the past and he will fight in the future. Firstly, it reminds us of the time when Satan's demons, Michael and his angels, had a war in heaven, verse 3 and 4. It tells us that Michael and his angels won that, and they cast Satan out of heaven with a third of the angels. And then starting in verse 7, we come forward to the time during the tribulation. Satan's demons were originally cast out of heaven, but they still have access to it. We know that because we see that in the book of Job. Don't ask me how that, how that, how that works, but that's obviously what happens because you see it in Job but around the time of the rapture possibly because of the rapture there will be a great war between Satan host and the angels in heaven and at that time all the demons along with Satan would be barred from any access to heaven permanently there would be no longer any access for him or any of his angels to heaven so far then we've seen demons come out of the pit like locusts We've seen demons floating around in the air. They're now thrown down to the planet permanently. They no longer have access to heaven. This happens during the tribulation period, as Satan did in Job. So they're going to be confined to earth. As a result of this, on earth there will be an incredibly uh, demonically infested time of history. The attack has always been directed towards Israel. But the rest of the chapter in 12 tells us how God protects Israel. I'm not going to go into all the details, this is just a quick run through. But at one point, for example, in verse 16, there's a great army chasing Israel and the ground just swallows up the great army. So God continues to protect his people, Jewish and Gentile Christians. Then in chapter 13, we go back to the time of the tribulation. And we find out about the career of the Antichrist. He leads all this attack on God's people. For example, it says in verse 4, Who is like him? Who is able to make war with him? He has a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies and power was given to him to continue for 42 months. That's uh, three and a half years, the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. And it says he opened his mouth, verse 6 now, in blasphemy against God, blaspheming his name, his tabernacle, and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given to him over all people, tongues and nations. This man, whoever he is, will have great power and he will make war. He has a cohort, though, we're told about in chapter 13, verse 11. The cohort is the false prophet. So in Revelation, the beast is the Antichrist. We looked at that last week, if you remember. At some point... This great world leader will arise, he'll bring peace, then he'll break the peace, and then he'll get power and so on. But he also has another one, the false prophet, who is his helper. The work of the false prophet is to point everyone to the Antichrist, and eventually to tell everyone to worship the Antichrist. So this false leader, this great leader of the future, not only does he want to lead the world, he wants the world to worship him. It's demonic. At one point he's, he actually is possessed by Satan himself. He performs wonders, this Antichrist and the false prophet, lying signs, and he also builds a big image to the beast. So this image is built, 
And he makes it come alive, it says. Now that might be some electronic ventriloquism or possibly demonic activity or there might be a demon put in the idol itself so it might become a demon-possessed idol. But whatever happens, it looks as if it's alive. He brings it to life. Now the reason I say it looks is because Satan can mimic all sorts of things. He has great power. He does not have the power to give life. He has the power to take life. He can kill, but he can't give life, he can't create life he can do amazing miracles and wonders but he can't do that but this is amazing it looks as if it's come to life and everybody in the world starts to, to worship the, the Antichrist the whole world is literally crawling with demons they are now in control of everything and it can even make this image speak and that's the job of the false prophet to get people to worship the Antichrist then it says uh, something interesting that a lot of people will know about in verse 16 to 18 that in this vision if you don't have the number you can't buy, you can't sell and you can't operate in society and the number is 666 and everyone always thinks oh that's the devil's number no it isn't the devil's number it's the mark of the beast it's the number he gives to mankind but it's mankind's number not the devil's number it's humankind's fallen sinful people's number man you see was created on the sixth day i think that's um, interesting seven as i've told you before is god's perfect number um, it's the number of completion and the number of fullness and you often have seven in the, in the old testament and the new signifying uh, perfection in a sense so six 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 it's like man is falling short falling short falling short sinful man so that's the number of mankind's system. I think it's curious that all the taxi cabs in Israel start with the number 666 and then a dash and then the other numbers. I don't think that's particularly significant. I just think that's interesting. But what is significant is that you won't be able to operate in this future society unless you have this number. Now that doesn't mean it's necessarily the number 666 as such, but this number on your forehead and on your hand. Now even today we have credit cards which have numbers, national insurance numbers, you use your bank card, um, you're known really as a number in many ways. And with your, the number on your card or whatever, they can find out a lot about you. I don't know if you really thought about it, but when, when you go shopping, I mean they know, I mean, actually if you've got a computer, I've done it before myself, you've gone onto um, some website and it's advertising stuff that you've looked at before not, not on that website necessarily this is no what you're interested in they're, they're watching you all the time so if they decide that you wouldn't be allowed to buy or sell anything all they're going to do is remove your number even today they're already developing ways to put um, numbers in your hand and, and on your forehead and incidentally in a cold climate they're the two parts of the body that are readily exposed if you want to buy something and today they've even uh, started developing ways to put chips implants into your body um, I was a few years ago now that, that there was some company I can't remember whether it was in London or wherever where they put a chip just here in, in this just between your thumb and your forefinger so that when you went into the office you used that to get in I don't like the sound of that because that sounds a bit like this if ever there's a time in the future when some company wants to put a chip into you I would suggest don't do it if they did a man like the Antichrist literally can control everything so that's going to happen in the future they won't be able to buy you won't be able to sell you won't be able to operate unless you do what the antichrist says then we come to chapter 14 
which looks again to the victory of Jesus Christ. You see, 144,000, we looked at them last week, standing on Mount Zion, when Jesus comes back and they're singing praise because of the victory of Jesus Christ. Now all of the Holocaust comes to focus in what is known as Armageddon. There's a plain called Megiddo, um, it's just to the, sort of the left of Israel and up in the north. Armageddon is Har Megiddo, it's the plain of Megiddo where the final battle will take place. The glimpse of Armageddon and we see sickles and reaping and harvest, it's all aspects of judgment in verse 15. So right at the end, the Lord comes in terrifying judgment. Verse 20 sums it up. The winepress is trodden outside the city, and the blood came out of the winepress, even to the horses' bridles, at the space of 1,600 furlongs. That's 200 miles long, whole length of Israel, five foot deep. So symbolically, there's God tramping out his judgment. Earlier in the chapter, remember we looked in verse 9 and 12. Hang on. In the saints, be patient, because God is coming in judgment. And this is just the fulfilment of that. God's working out his wrath. He's working out his judgment. Which brings us to chapter 15. The last seven judgments. This is relentless. This happens at the very end. Things are really going quickly now. See this tremendous scene in heaven unfolding in chapter 15. They're getting ready for the final judgment. It says in verse 8, The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and his power. No man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. And the judgment bursts in chapter 16. The first ball is poured out. This is happening now in very quick succession. We're right to the end nearly. Chapter 16, verse 2. There fell a foul and painful sore upon the men who had the mark of the beast and upon them who worshipped his image. May well refer to some cancerous sore as a result of having the mark of the beast. I think it might be um, perhaps some uh, microchip that's implanted into your body turns out to be a bad thing for the human body. That's just me surmising, I don't know. But something happens. You get this problem. Immediately then comes the second ball. Verse 3. And you can tell it's the end now. Because the sea becomes like blood and every living soul died. Remember, a third of the sea died before, now it all goes, the whole lot. So there's a smelly, horrible, dead creatures everywhere. Verse 4, And a third angel poured out his bowl upon the rivers and the fountains of waters, and they became like blood. Now the fresh water, remember before it was a third, now it's all of it. Now you know, it's, it's almost like the last few days, because once the water's gone, I know people will still have bottled water for a while, but it, we're not going to last very long once the fresh water's gone. Verse 8 and 9, the fourth ball is poured out. The sun is so hot that it burns people with fire and scorches them to death. Instead of repenting, though, still they blaspheme the name of God. Which takes you to the fifth ball in verse 10, which brings darkness and people know their tongues for pain. You can't even see where you're going now. They can't find any relief. Verse 11, they blaspheme the God of heaven because of the pains and the sores. Then verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the river Euphrates, and now comes the way of the kings of the east. This leads to the battle of Armageddon, because the army that I mentioned earlier comes from the east, and then Armageddon, the final battle in the plain of Armageddon comes. Also mentions three unclean spirits like frogs. These are demons of a particularly nasty nature. Um, in verse 13 and the world gathers together at the battle of Armageddon to fight 
Daniel chapter 11 also describes this. Kings of the north come down, they sweep through the south. The kings of the east come down and the west. The desperate, it's almost like there's nothing else they can do. They just have to fight. And then, in the midst of all this, out of heaven comes Jesus Christ. The seventh ball is poured out at the end of chapter 16. And there's lightning and thunder. It says, every island fled away. The mountains were not found. There was hail from heaven. Hail weighs about 100 pounds. Imagine that, a 100 pound block of ice and there's lots of it. And that's the finale. But then chapter 17 and 18, you get another sort of a recap. Just giving you a little bit more information to tell you what happens leading up to this time. And the question you ask is, what about religion? Will there be religion in the tribulation? And chapter 17 says that there will be religion, but it will be the religion of a false church. Now this doesn't mean that the true Christians will not be worshipping, they will. There'll be a, like throughout history, when the Catholic Church arose, there were still true Christians worshipping, you just didn't see them so much, but they were there. But the false church, and the false church is the harlot. Remember the, the true church is the bride of Christ, so it's quite fitting that the false church is called the harlot. And it talks about the harlot that sits on many waters and drinks the wine of fornication and sits on the beast. The harlot rides the Antichrist. In other words, this is a state religion. Uh, the political leader and the false religious system exist together at first. And they emphasise at first. Because the Antichrist, the secular side, is consumed by his own power. So eventually we read in this chapter that he devours the harlot. And he says, now the whole world is going to worship me. So he gets rid of this religion... And he says, no, we're not going to worship that anymore. You worship me. I am God, basically. This is probably where the false prophet sets up the image and the whole world is commanded to worship the Antichrist. No other religion, in other words, is tolerated but him. Because the beast, verse 16, eats up the harlot. Then chapter 18 tells you a little bit more information. But this time about what about the economics? What's going to happen with economics at this time? And the answer is obvious. We've seen the religion in chapter 17. Now we get the economic view. What's going to happen economically? Well, obviously, everything starts to collapse. Babylon the Great, Babylon's the name for the final world economic system, falls. It becomes the habitation of demons. Demons take over the world. The nations are saddened. It says in verse 5, The sins of the world have reached to heaven, and God remembered her iniquities. In other words, the whole, and this is obviously no surprise at this time, the whole world system begins to collapse. The economy, the money, everything goes. It says in verse 10 and 11, Alas, the great city of Babylon, that mighty city, in one hour your judgment has come, and the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn. Nobody buys their merchandise anymore. I mean, who's going to go shopping during the tribulation? Nobody. Who's going to go to the mall? Nobody. The system, the world system, economically just collapses. Verse 12 and 13, it just gives you all the details of the different things that won't be sold and bought anymore. Obviously, it doesn't tell us about things in our time, but it tells us about things in the time of John. Nobody cares about that. And in verse 17, we're told the shipping trade obviously goes. Then we're told the transportation system falls apart. It's, it's the end. It's all over. One of the worst things, I think, music, verse 22, will also end. There won't be any more music. Sound of harps, minstrels, flutes, players, trumpeters shall be no more. No craftsmen, no art, no nothing. It's all ending. 
But while everyone on earth is doing that, what's happening in heaven? Chapter 19, verse 20, there is rejoicing. This is the bitter sweet again. It's horrible, yes, it is bitter, but at the same time it's sweet because God is finally having the glory that he alone deserves. Finally, the people who have rejected him are facing the consequences of that. So everyone in heaven is ready. And they're also ready to go into the Millennium Kingdom. And how are they getting there? Verse 11, it says, Heaven opens, and a white horse comes, and him that sat on it was called Faithful and True, obviously Jesus. And he judges, and he makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows. And it goes on to describe him. And in verse 14, The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clear. That's God's people. In other words, all the people who went up into heaven in the rapture now come back with Jesus, leading the way to take over the earth. He comes to Armageddon in blazing glory, and he destroys his enemies. He's on a white horse, and we are also coming in white garments with him. And his name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, verse 16. And as a result of Armageddon, verse 17, there's carnage and there's death and the birds of the air eat the flesh. The beast and the false prophet, verse 20, are cast alive into the lake of fire and burning with brimstone. And the people in the armies who are remained are slaughtered with the sword. This is the final battle of Armageddon. And then in chapter 20, the Lord sets up his kingdom on earth. At some time in the future, after the second coming, there's going to be a thousand year reign of Jesus on earth. I know some people who are amillennialists say, oh no, that's not true, it's only symbolic. That doesn't fit at all with anything in the Bible. It, it just doesn't work. Um, for example, I, I was saying on Sunday, one thing that Jesus says, I won't drink of this fruit of the vine with you until I drink it new with you in the kingdom. He's, in other words, I'm not going to drink again this until the kingdom. Now he's not talking about heaven, because you know he's not going to be drinking the fruit of the vine in heaven. He's talking about this time, a thousand year reign on earth. And a thousand year on earth, the saints who live and reign with Jesus come and we live on earth. Then, at the end of the thousand years... We see that Satan is loosed again just for a little while. Again, this shows you that there's obviously a period where we're on earth because Satan is loosed again. He's been bound for that thousand years, but he's loosed just for a little while. Now, you have to remember, during the Millennium Kingdom, there will be some people who are in physical bodies. Because although God's people come from heaven, there are people who are going to be alive during the tribulation who become Christians who will not be taken off earth who will go into the kingdom as human Christians they will procreate and have children during this thousand years but amazingly some of the children obviously don't accept the rule of Jesus Christ some of the children don't become Christians for some reason they don't recognise Jesus Christ for who he is they reject him and these are the people that we read of in verse 9, that Satan gives a final rebellion, and there's a little uprising, just before the final final, before the fire comes from heaven, and it devours them all. And then in verse 11, all the unsaved of history are collected at the great white throne judgment. Verse 15, if the names are not found in the book of life, they are cast into hell, and that's the end of the thousand year reign on earth. Now, after the thousand year reign, 
in chapter 21 verse 1 and 2 we're going to be doing this in a couple of weeks I'm not going to tell you much more about this but it says I saw a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem at that point we leave earth we enter into new heaven and a new earth and the rest of chapter 21 and chapter 22 which as I said we will be looking at in a couple of weeks goes into the detail of that and the last message comes at the end of chapter 22 verse 17 and the spirit and the bride say come and let him that hears say come and let him that is thirsty come and whoever will let him take the waters of life freely that's a very last invitation from God and Jesus then reigns forever it says with John even so come Lord Jesus I'm ready I hope that we all are ready too